Tonight, straight from the source, the special counsel drilling down on yet another Oval Office meeting. This time, Donald Trump bragged about election security months before attacking election security. Plus, see you in court. The governor of Texas throwing down a challenge to President Biden, the legal battle on the border over what the White House says is chaos and stunts. A 2024 contender who represented a border district is here with me. In Alabama, defying a Supreme Court order, a state lawmaker on the fight hearkening back to the state's darkest history will join me. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Good evening. The grand jury here in Washington that is investigating Donald Trump and his actions surrounding January 6th will meet again tomorrow. That, as the former president's legal team believes that he is on the verge of being indicted for potentially a third time. Tonight, we have new exclusive reporting on what Jack Smith is asking questions about. This time, another Oval Office meeting that happened in February of 2020. Sources tell CNN that in that meeting, Trump praised the very improvement to U.S. election security that he has now spent years attacking. This was right around the same time that his administration put out a report and had this quote here. The Department of Homeland Security's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency has helped state and local election officials secure online voter registration systems, voting machines, and other election infrastructure. Trump was apparently so on board with those changes that he pushed the FBI and Homeland Security to hold a press conference talking about what they had done. Then, just months later, of course, as we've all seen, he launched what has become years of baseless attacks on those very same election systems, something that he is still doing to this day. Very dangerous thing for this country because they're cheaters. They go and collect them. They're fraudulent in many cases. I don't want to see a crooked election. This election will be the most rigged election in history. The only way we're going to lose this election is if the election is rigged. Remember that. It's the only way we're going to lose this election. But they know it's it's going to be fraudulent. It's going to be fraud all over the place. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. I'm joined now by one of the reporters who broke this story, CNN's Evan Perez, as well as former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. Evan, let's start with what we know. Obviously, this is February of 2020. What was happening in this meeting? Who all was there? Well, you had a number of uh, important people from inside the White House, of course, people from the Homeland Security Department, uh, people involved in uh, some of those election security efforts, the FBI. Uh, They all were there because the former president wanted everyone to take credit for all the work that he was very proud of. He said his administration had uh, been successful in, in securing the election system so that the 2020 election in the end, uh, the Homeland Security Department ended up declaring it the most secure election in U.S. history. Um, the former president, though at the time, really liked hearing uh, all the work that was done. And of course, you know, you can see the contrast with him just months later, weeks later, actually, uh, where he started undermining what he knew was the truth. And so one of the things that, you know, this raises, obviously, for the investigation is, uh, you, know, our, our, you know, for prosecutors, they want to know his mindset. And this sort of gives a window into two sides of Trump when he's listening to his experts and everything that he says, you know, they did great. Uh, versus when he's listening to his non-experts and he's going out peddling these false claims of fraud 
uh, blaming Venezuela and China and Italian satellites for yeah. uh, for things that he says uh, cost him the election. Hugo Chavez and and all the like. Shane, what does it say to you that, that this is something that Jack Smith is asking about? I mean, I think that's what's the most notable about this is it's not just this meeting. There are other Oval Office meetings. Clearly, he has a lot of questions about Trump's mindset. But what do prosecutors need to know about this meeting? What What is what is the intent of that? Yeah, I think it really speaks to how wide-ranging um, Smith is being in the investigation. All of this evidence he's gathering may not all, of course, be used in court. I mean, they're going to pick and choose what's best for them to use, but he's really leaving no stone unturned. This particular point, <clears throat> I think, is interesting because it certainly shows that at one point Trump's expressing that he has confidence in the security election. Obviously, later, you know, he changed his mind. I think it's important to understand, though, They don't have to prove that he honestly believed the election was fine. He can continue to claim that, oh, in my heart, I distrusted the results, whatever I was being told. What they need to prove, ultimately, is his intent to interfere. And that's a slightly nuanced distinction, but it's different than having to prove to the world that he honestly believed he lost. Evidence where he says, yeah, I think I lost, that's really damaging (laughs) to his credibility. But it's not an element of their proof. But Evan, what also what does it speak to given Trump was getting these kinds of briefings from these top officials? He knew how secure the systems were, what they were doing to beef it up going into the election, obviously with changes because of the pandemic. Yet he was still publicly saying before a vote was even cast that there was going to be widespread fraud. I think it goes to what Sean is saying, which is the it goes to the idea that the former president had one strategy, which was a political strategy, right, which was. Uh, to claim, it, it, just in case he was going to turn out uh, on the losing end of this, uh, to claim that it was not fair, that it was rigged. You hear him using that yeah. term a lot uh, during the summer. And it's all because he is anticipating or he's setting up uh, certainly what ended up happening, which was he came out on the losing end. And so, uh, you know, I think if you're the prosecutors, you can look at both things and bifurcate it, right? One, on one hand, he's listening to his experts and he wants to take credit for everything that they've done. And even up till the end, he's hearing his White House counsel, he's hearing his attorney general, everyone telling him that these fraud claims were bogus. And he decides to follow his political whims, right? Which was to claim that it was fraud so that he could try to remain in power. Yeah, and all of this comes as we're looking at what Jack Smith is looking at, Shan, and... We're, Trump's team is bracing for an indictment. They believe it could happen potentially as soon as tomorrow. I mean, no one really seems to know if and when that does come down. What are you going to be looking for when it comes to seeing what Jack Smith is asking about, but seeing what he actually thinks he could potentially prove and charge? Yeah, I think uh, he has a history, Smith does, of doing the so-called speaking indictment. So we'll be looking for a pretty well laid out story here in terms of what happened. I'm particularly curious as to whether they're going to really rely upon the violence that happened and whether they're going to interweave that into the charges that they're choosing to bring forward. On the one hand, it's a very good thing for the D.C. jury because they were all aware of the violence that affected them. On the other hand, it may be easier for Trump to distance himself from the violence. I wasn't there breaking things. I didn't tell them, you know, I told them to do things peacefully. But it's an integral part of what happened, and he's clearly laying a story that starts much earlier than that actual day, January yeah, this 6th. This takes back to February of 2020. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's I know, a very it's going to be story. potentially fascinating, especially just given, obviously, he has much more power than the January 6th Congressional Committee right. did. Evan, great reporting, Shan. Thank you very much. Joining me tonight is Republican presidential candidate and former Congressman Will Hurd. Uh, Congressman, you were a CIA officer for 
nearly 10 years. What do you make of Jack Smith's interest in Trump's mindset about election systems being secure, you know, before he was aggressively attacking those very same election systems? Well, I think he's going for this creating a conspiracy, right? This is the FBI is known for this. They've done this in a number of white collar crimes. I think that's what the focus is. Um, You know, we saw so much of the interviews that happened during the January 6th uh, committee hearings. Uh, We saw the conclusion of the Fox News um, and Dominion um, lawsuit about the fact that so many people knew uh, that what Donald Trump was saying was a lie. Um, I think you have the video evidence. Donald Trump rallied everybody to come to the Capitol on January 6th. He told them to march down the street um, on, on January 6th. They basically told him to get uh, Mike Pence. Um, and, and, and to me, uh, if we are sick and tired of this kind of thing, if we don't want to see this potentially happen again, then we need to make sure that Donald Trump loses in, in the Republican primary, uh, because the likelihood that these court cases get resolved before that happens is is very low. So it's time to, uh, we need more people voting in this Republican primary um, to, to make sure that we don't see what, what we saw on January 6th ever happen again. Yeah, he's on the verge of potentially being indicted for January 6th in that investigation. He reposted a meme over the weekend that read, January 6th will go down in history as the day that the government staged a riot to cover up the fact that they certified a fraudulent election. That's what Donald Trump reposted. I mean, beyond the fact that Trump was the one running the government that day, what do you make of that? Well, look, this is, uh, you know, it's insane is is literally the, the bottom line. And what's what's even wilder to me is that the number of people that are trying to run against Donald Trump are defending him. You know, you're not going to beat Donald Trump by kissing his butt or being a clone of him or licking his boots. You know, this is someone who is a national security threat to the United States. This is someone who willingly like like imagine if you had kids working on the Capitol that day. First time you're working for your hometown congressman and you're hiding under your desk. That's absolutely crazy to me. And then the fact that he was setting this up all the way in the summer when you started getting reports that he was potentially could lose uh, to Joe Biden. And and what, what's frustrating to me is that you know who's excited about all this going on are adversaries, the Chinese government, the Russian government, the Iranian government, the North Korean government, all of them are gleeful that this kind of drama is, is going on. And unfortunately, if the Republican Party nominates Donald Trump as the, the, our, our nominee, then we're going to give four more years uh, to Joe Biden because this baggage is only increasing and it's only going to hurt con- more in a general election. Senator Tim Scott said recently that he holds the rioters responsible for what happened that day, not Trump himself. Obviously, Senator Scott was there that day. Who do you believe is responsible for what happened on January 6th? I think the people that were responsible are the people that sent the rioters and the people that were down there trying to do an insurrection, right? Like everybody, like Donald Trump is responsible. He's the one uh, that fomented this. We know that he was planning and working with groups in advance. You know, that evidence has already come out in the January 6th uh, hearings. Um, and to me, of uh, those, you know, I, I wasn't in Congress. I had just left 
um, when um, when that happened. And, and, and unfortunately, we have too many people that are supporting uh, Donald Trump and are not calling a, a spade a spade. And we need more people that are willing to stand up. We need more people to vote in the Republican Party because we can't handle uh, four more years of Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Well, we have more questions for you about the primary process, of course. Stand by, Congressman, not just that. Also, the border battle is it, that is going on with your home state and the Justice Department. We'll get to that in just a moment. Also ahead, Ukraine is now taking credit for today's drone strikes on Moscow, warning that Putin that more attacks could come. I'm going to speak with the former Defense Secretary, Leon Panetta, about this new flashpoint in the war. Tonight, the Justice Department is now suing the state of Texas over those floating barriers in the Rio Grande that the administration says violates the law. The Justice Department told Texas Governor, who is a Republican, I should note, Greg Abbott, to remove them last week, citing federal laws that protect free navigation along the waterway that you see there, as well as their concerns about the humanitarian issues at play here. Abbott refused to do so and argued that they are needed to deter migrants from crossing over from Mexico. And he wrote a letter to President Biden essentially saying, see you in court. We will litigate initially in a federal district court in the state of Texas. Uh, if we lose there, we will be going to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and eventually all the way to the United States Supreme Court because Texas is defending its sovereignty and its constitutional right to secure the border of our state and our country. Former Congressman and Republican candidate for president, Will Hurd, is back with me now. Congressman, obviously you represented a district in Texas that encompasses more than 800 miles of the 1,200-mile Texas-Mexico border. You know these issues well. Do you agree that the Justice Department has the standing to take legal action here? Well, the way this should have been resolved is Joe Biden should have picked up the phone, called Governor Abbott, and talked about what is the best way that we can share, um, use federal resources and state resources to address a humanitarian crisis that is not only impacting every community along the border in Texas, but communities throughout the United States. This is how this should have, have been resolved. Uh, there are probably some issues when it comes to uh, the, the landowner rights um, that are happening in the border. There's an international boundary or an, an international boundary um, uh, a treaty that that dictates how activities should happen along the border, but the fact that this is being sorted, trying to be sorted out in a in a in a court of law is not beneficial to anybody. What needs to happen is Texas and the United States and, and the U.S. government should be working together to get the Mexican government to do more on their side. A 5.5 million people have come into this country illegally uh, since Joe Biden is in, has been in office. This crisis began under Donald Trump. It got significantly worse under Joe Biden. And this is not going to get resolved by these legal battles and everybody trying to fight in social media and the press. Yeah, I should note illegal border crossings are actually at their lowest point in about two mm -hmm. years, which is not what people were predicting when those Title 42 restrictions were lifted. But you sure. just mentioned there, you know, something that I think most people would like to believe that the president could call the Texas governor and they could have a conversation about this. But I mean, given the fact that Greg Abbott, you know, has bused migrants to the vice president's residence here in Washington and dropped them off uh, in a political move, clearly, I mean, do you really think that a conversation between the two of them would have resolved this? 
Well, well, it should. And let's let's talk about the realities of what's happening. Um, it is about 110 degrees at night when when the sun goes down in many of these places. You always see uh, a, a decrease in the amount of people that are coming across the, the border illegally um, in, in the summer. Um, it's not humane to allow human smugglers uh, to have people go in these treacherous waters and come in between our ports of entry. It's illegal to come into a country in between our, our, our ports of entry. It's not humane to have people sleeping on the sidewalks in places like El Paso and, and, and Eagle Pass when it is over 100 degrees at, at night. And, and, it, and it's just not about busing people to California or New York. There's hundreds of people every single night that are flying out of, of airports to places all around, around the country. And, and so ultimately, we know what the problem is here. You got to stop treating everybody as an asylum seeker. Donald Trump started this. This happened under Joe Biden. People wanting to come to the United States to get a good paying job is not an excuse for asylum. You can't come in between our, our ports of entry. Why hasn't Joe Biden worked on trying to streamline legal immigration? It's 2023. Um, we should be able to determine that Texas uh, needs workers in the you know, hospitality industry, Florida needs workers in agriculture. We should be able to address that. Joe Biden is doing, doing nothing on this. And then also, how come the Mexican government is not helping us enough? So these are all, all the problems. And, and, and this is a, a problem squarely uh, because of, 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 of Joe Biden. And it started under Donald Trump. And if people want to see these kinds of debates happening, if people want to see someone who's not afraid to tell Donald Trump that he you know, did the wrong thing in January 6th and, and was responsible for that, then I need you all to go on HerdForAmerica.com and help me get on the debate stage so we can have these debates um, with Donald Trump and the rest of the Republican nominees. Yeah, well, I should note Congress isn't doing much to fix immigration either. Uh, but on the debate stage, I'm glad you brought that up because seven candidates have now met that polling threshold that you have to meet to get on the first stage in a little over a month from now. Uh, I know you hope to qualify, but you have not qualified yet. What happens if you don't? Well, I'm on I'm on week number five uh, that we're working towards towards hitting our numbers. Uh, we got about 28 days in order to accomplish this. Uh, that's what we're working uh, towards. We know what we need to do in order to do this. And here's what I'm learning. Uh, folks uh, want to see someone on the debate stage who is willing to, to take it to Donald Trump, who's not afraid of Donald Trump, who's not going to give him a pass on, on all the things that he's done wrong, who's going to talk about how he's lost. Um, he hasn't won an election since 2016, but also someone who's going to talk about the future, about how do we deal with the Chinese government? How do we make sure that our kids are getting a world-class education? How do we make sure that they're getting, when they go to school, that they're in safe environments? Uh, these are the debates to have. And again, it's heardforamerica.com. All you have to do is give $1 and we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. And, and Caitlin, you know, I said, I'm not gonna sign a, a pledge mm -hmm. um, to support the nominee because I will not support Donald Trump. I can't lie to get access to, to a, a microphone. Uh, but Donald Trump hasn't even agreed yet. Um, that he was going to sign that pledge. So a lot can happen in the next five weeks. Yeah, we'll see what does happen. You know, the closest challenger to Trump right now, and it's not even really that close depending on which poll you're looking at and which state, mm -hmm. is Governor Ron DeSantis. He is defending a new benchmark that was included in this overhaul to Florida's African-American history standards. And the benchmark says middle schoolers should be instructed, and I'm quoting from it now, slaves developed skills which in some instances could be applied for their personal benefit. This is DeSantis defending it. 
Um, I think what they're doing is I think that they're probably going to show um, some of the folks that eventually parlayed, uh, you know, being a blacksmith into into doing things later later in life. What do you make of that defense? Look, it is it is shocking to me, Caitlin, that in 2023, I have to say this. There is no there was no upside to slavery. Slavery was not a jobs program. And also Ron DeSantis just showed his lack of leadership by acting like it was somebody else's fault and not something that was done on his watch. Here is here is the reality. If you're going to talk about how African-Americans, despite being treated like like property, despite having zero freedoms or, or zero rights, that they still had a tremendous impact on our country. If you want to talk about that, that's great. But to imply that there was an upside, it is unacceptable. And what he should have done <clears throat> is say, listen, that was that was worded wrong. We're going to fix that. There is no upside to slavery. We're going to make sure that we we talk about this and that our kids in, in schools get a proper understanding of our history. That's how a, a real leader would have solved this problem, not letting this continue to fester. Congressman Will Hurd, thank you for joining us tonight. It's always a pleasure to be on. Protesters in Israel pouring into the streets after a vote to overhaul the Supreme Court's powers passed today, despite warnings from the White House that it shouldn't. And Ukraine is now claiming responsibility for those attacks you saw on Moscow inside the capital as Russia is continuing its assault on the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. Perspective from the former Defense Secretary Leon Panetta next. Tonight, a new flashpoint in Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine. Ukraine is now warning Moscow that it could see more drone strikes after they claimed responsibility for the unmanned drones that crashed into buildings in the Russian capital. And though the strikes did not cause major damage, they did hit inside the Russian Defense Ministry complex, which houses the GRU, Russia's military intelligence service. That comes after Ukraine says that Russian missiles destroyed dozens of cultural landmarks in Ukraine, including a historic cathedral in Odessa that you can see here. The church is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. It dates back to the late 1700s. But this is just the latest in the wave of attacks that we've seen on the southern port city, where Russia is actively destroying Ukraine's grain reserves and therefore threatening the global food supply. Joining me now for more on this, Leon Panetta, former defense secretary and CIA director under President Obama. Mr. Secretary, thank you for being here tonight. We, we seem to have hit a turning point where Ukraine is openly claiming responsibilities for some of these attacks that are happening inside Russia. I mean, just the fact that they happened, the fact that they're taking credit for it, what does it say to you about what stage of the conflict that we are in here? Well, I think the Ukrainians are uh, are making a statement that uh, uh, Russia is not just going to have a license to attack uh, their cities and their people and their cathedrals uh, and not get pushback from the Ukrainians. And uh, they're made very clear that they're going to respond. They're going to send these drones into Moscow. They're going to send drones into Crimea. They're going to hit the Russians back. I think that's the message that the Ukrainians are sending. Yeah, because, of course, the Russians have obviously been barding 
Ukraine, but Russians have largely lived, you know, without a, a fear of that. Ukraine's defense minister said today, Kiev's counteroffensive, it's behind schedule. It's not where they want it to be. How much do you believe that has to do just to the, the lack of weapons or the ammunition that they, they say they so desperately need? Well, I think it's a combination of things. Uh, obviously, look, this is a tough slog. It's not easy. The Russians have planted a huge number of mines. Uh, they built fortifications. They have manpower. They control the air uh, over those areas. Uh, the Ukrainians uh, are struggling to be able to keep up with the arms that they need in order to uh, hit the Russians. Uh, and so that combination, obviously, is what has thrown them off of their, their schedule. Now, Ukrainians have made progress. They've been able to get back over a half of the land that the Russians acquired during the invasion. Uh, in addition to that, they continue to put pressure on the Russians uh, in the east. But there is no question that, you know, we're looking at one of two paths here. One is the Russian path, which is a war of attrition, a stalemate, that ultimately can break the will of the United States, Ukrainians, and our allies. The other is the Ukrainian path, which is to, to have a successful initiative here to go after the Russians, break their line, push the Russians back, and ultimately force Putin either to withdraw or to negotiate. Hopefully, that is the path that ultimately the Ukrainians, the United States, and our allies have to make sure it takes takes place in this war. We also saw uh, what's happening in Israel today, where lawmakers enacted a major change in a law restricting essentially the ways in which the Supreme Court can overrule the government. Did you, seeing that, which the White House warned against, I should know, did you see that as a blow to, to the rule of law in Israel? You know, the... The bond that the United States has with Israel is built on the fact that Israel is a democracy, the only democracy in the Middle East, and that we share some basic values uh, as democracies. And one of those important values is a system of checks and balances that makes sure that power is not going to be centralized in any one branch of government. Uh, I think what they did by enacting this limitation uh, on the ability of the Supreme Court to have oversight uh, over what, what happens in the government uh, impacts on their system of checks and balances and very frankly weakens their democracy. That's not good for Israel. It's not good for the United States. And frankly, it's not good for the Middle East. And of course, it's as Netanyahu himself is on trial for, for corruption charges. Mr. Secretary, before we go, three years ago, you signed your name to a letter alongside dozens of other intelligence officials saying, you know, that the Hunter Biden email saga had, the letter said, all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation. You noted that the people who signed it said you didn't know for sure, of course, what it was. But given what we know now, do you wish that you hadn't signed that letter or been involved in it? No, not at all. Uh, I signed that letter for one reason, which was to make the American people aware that the Russians uh, deliberately uh, were engaged in a disinformation campaign in the United States and trying to impact on our election and trying to impact uh, on our, uh, our ability to have free and fair elections. Uh, that's why I signed that letter. 
And very frankly, I have seen no evidence to the contrary that Russia has not engaged in that kind of disinformation campaign. Right. But we just haven't seen evidence affirming that either. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for your time and for your expertise tonight. Good to be with you, Caitlin. GOP Senator Mitt Romney has a new urgent message for his party, what he says Republicans must do, in his view, to block Donald Trump from becoming the Republican nominee. Plus, Governor Ron DeSantis is pushing the reset button again on his own White House run. Details on his new promise to deliver what they say is a, quote, leaner, meaner campaign. We are now less than one month away from the first Republican presidential primary debate. It's going to be happening in Milwaukee. And so far, seven of the declared candidates have met the polling threshold that would get them a spot on that stage. The latest poll, which is from Fox Business, shows Trump with at least a 30-point lead in both Iowa and South Carolina. Trailing him in second, as you can see here, Governor Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, and Senator Tim Scott, all essentially in a statistical tie. Governor DeSantis, for his part, is rebooting yet again, now promising donors a leaner, meaner campaign. Tonight, all of this is happening as top Republican Party officials are still trying to convince the frontrunner, Donald Trump, to show up. Ronald Reagan didn't do it, and a lot of other people didn't do it. When you have a big lead, you don't do it. For more on this, I want to bring in CNN political commentator Karen Finney and Matt Lewis, senior columnist at The Daily Beast and an author of the new book, Filthy Rich Politicians, The Swamp Creatures, Latte Liberals and Ruling Class Elites Cashing In on America. We are going to get to that book in a moment, Matt, because obviously it's a topic I think everyone can agree on. Um, but we're learning these new details about another reset that the DeSantis campaign is trying. It involves smaller events, getting him in front of voters in these early states like Iowa and South Carolina, and kind of what they say is embracing this underdog mentality. I, the question, of course, is, does it work? Well, I think they have to do something. So I'm all for rejiggering and retooling or whatever rebooting whatever they want to do. I just, I don't think it's going to work. Now, we have seen campaigns, John Kerry in 04, John McCain in 08, where uh, it has worked. But I think the fundamental problem with Ron DeSantis, it's not about his staff. It's not about overhead or the burn rate. It's about Ron DeSantis. People don't like Ron DeSantis, but he can't fire himself. And so the shakeup has to be something else. So uh, you know, they have to try this. But at the end of the day, uh, you have a candidate who's running against Donald Trump, who's still wildly popular in the Republican Party, at least. And you have a candidate who, on paper, I think Ron DeSantis had a lot of pretty compelling arguments for why he should be the nominee. But he, he's just not a likable or charismatic person. But also it feels like the Republican primary electorate has said, we want Donald Trump. We don't want the fake version from Florida. This is who we want. This is who we're going to support. So in that instance, DeSantis just doesn't offer anything. He's not been able to grow the base uh, of support, his base of support throughout this period that he's been retooling and retooling and retooling. And it's hard to see how leaner, meaner is going to actually benefit him. I mean, it's more the establishment saying we're trying to pump him up, but it's not, voters just aren't 
buying it. Yeah, I mean, there is still time. Obviously, we're still in the summer. But I mean, the debate obviously is seen as critical by a lot of people. And that's what was so interesting about that new poll that obviously all the Republicans were waiting for it to come out yesterday is to see how much people like Senator Tim Scott have gained ground. I mean, Obviously, DeSantis's campaign for weeks now has been saying he deserves more scrutiny because essentially they would like for the heat to be on someone else as well. Well, I mean, you know, I was just talking about how Ron DeSantis, I, in my opinion, and I think a lot of people's opinion, lacks the uh, the wow factor that 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 certain something. Uh, Tim Scott has that. Tim Scott uh, is likable, utterly likable. He's optimistic. And uh, I, I think he has the potential to have a moment. He's the kind of candidate who I think could catch fire in a debate. I don't think he becomes the nominee, but I think he could have a moment. And then the question I think will be, does Donald Trump turn on him the way he went after like Ben Carson in 2016? Or does Tim Scott, I think he's even potentially in the running uh, to be a running mate for Donald Trump. Sure. I mean, although I think we're going to see because the field is so large, people going up and down throughout the next several months. But that, again, that core base that supports Donald Trump just does not seem to be going anywhere. So you may see Nikki Haley, you may see, you know, Tim Scott, again, sort of go up and down and up and down. But that core base, they still want Trump. Well, and given that, Senator Romney put out a new op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today, speaking to everyone who is not named Donald Trump and essentially saying, if all of these people stay in the race, you're going to see a repeat of 2016. I mean, he said, donors who are backing someone with a slim chance of winning should seek a commitment from the candidate that to, to drop out and endorse the person with the best chance of defeating Mr. Trump by February 26th. I mean, how are you going to convince those yeah. candidates, hey, <laughs> you need to drop out? It's Here we done. go again. I feel like I've been through this story before where like, OK, if, if Ted Cruz wins Texas and, and Marco <laughs> wins Florida, we can, you know, um, look, I, I will say uh, it is true. It really doesn't matter how many candidates are running. What does matter are how or when they do get out. So uh, but how do you how do you tell somebody they're the one to get out? That right. fundamentally was the right. problem in I'm 2016. Stand, but you get out, yeah. right? That's yeah. going to be that conversation. Yeah. No, no, you go and I'll stay. I mean, yeah, you jump it, off the bridge. I'm going to stay. <laughs> exactly. I mean, you can see how that conversation goes. And again, this is the difference between the establishment donors and the base, where the base is saying we want Trump. We can see it in his fundraising. The establishment, they get together and they're trying to, you know, reboot Ron DeSantis. There's a real disconnect there. Yeah. Let's talk about your book. I mentioned that, of course, <laughs> Filthy Rich Politicians. It is out now. Everyone can buy it. You talk essentially in there about uh, how candidates or how politicians become so wealthy, what they make on Capitol Hill, but how they actually um, make so much money. And one thing that has been pointed out in Governor Ron DeSantis' first fundraising quarter is one of his largest campaign expenses is private planes. That candidates will argue they need them to get around because of their schedules, but his campaign paid nearly half a million dollars in these travel expenses. I believe it was $480,000. I mean, given the fact that you cover so much of this political wealth and what politicians do, what did you make of that number? Uh, well, I do think that the one of the reasons that poli- we can't get rid of politicians, that they stay in Congress forever, as I write in the book, that you know the founders wanted them to, to leave the farm and go to Washington, D.C., but now they'd rather buy the farm than, le- you know, <laughs> than leave the farm, uh, than go back to the farm. Uh, I think it's because of this lifestyle. You know, they, they become accustomed, this lifestyle they become accustomed to. And it wouldn't surprise me if Ron DeSantis, you know, has a, a taste now for flying uh, private. I've, I've heard it's nice. 
Uh, but by the way, Ron DeSantis just became the millionaire. He was, uh, and as recently as like two months ago, he was his net worth was three hundred thousand dollars, and and now because of his book, he's a millionaire. So so maybe he's a filthy rich politician. <laughs> All right, Matt Lewis, Karen Finney, thank you both, and good to see you here in Washington. All right, Alabama Democrats are ripping Governor Kay Ivey over the newly proposed congressional map that she has just signed. It includes just one majority black district in the entire state. One Alabama state lawmaker says it is offensive and wrong, and he's my next guest. Alabama Republicans are pushing through a new congressional map, openly defying the nation's highest court tonight. Last month, the Supreme Court stunned Alabama lawmakers when it ruled that they needed to redraw the map to create two majority black districts or something quite close to it, as the court said, to comply with the 1965 Voting Rights Act and to better correlate with the state's 27 percent black population. The new map drops the percentage of black voters in the existing majority black district from 55 to roughly 50 percent. It only increases the second district's share of black voters to about 40 percent from about 30 percent. The Republican supermajority is calling this a compromise, but Democrats in the state say it is offensive and wrong. The map now has to be approved by a federal court, which I should note is set to hear the case next month. This is a fight, though, that is not just about Alabama. It has legal implications far beyond, given 10 other states are also waging similar battles. Critics say this decision, though, in Alabama echoes the worst parts of the state's history, including my next guest tonight, Democratic state legislator Prince Chestnut of Selma. And thank you, Representative, for being here. I mean, Republicans in the state, including Chris Pringle, say that this map allows minorities to elect a candidate of their choosing. They said this is the best compromise that they could get. But is it a fair map in your view? Absolutely not. And I think it's what's really pressing is the fact that the uh, Alabama legislature, the supermajority, did not respect the ruling of the Supreme Court. Well, as we know, Alabama has, I mean, we, as we both know, we're both from there, as a fraught history with courts having to get involved on laws related to voting and civil rights. I mean, it was a legal challenge in the state in the early 1990s that forced the creation of that seventh congressional district, which is right now the state's only majority black district. I mean, does it surprise you that you're still having this fight in Alabama all these years later? Yes, it does, because I have um, I have ancestors that um, were involved in this fight. And um, you know, my grandmother was uh, was one of the, the people to ask for desegregation in the Selma City school system um, uh, more than 50 years ago. Um, have a relative that is, was a lawyer that fought these fights um, 50 years ago, and I just find it surprising and stunning that I'm still fighting those same fights that my ancestors fought. What was your What was your grandmother's name? Her name was Velberta Chestnut. And the fact that you do see that through line from from there to where we are now and to what you're fighting through, I mean, what does it say to you? Well, it just says to me that um, that there are many in in our home state that have a very recalcitrant and an obstreperous mindset that they're just not going to um, do the right thing unless a federal court makes them do it. What do you think your grandmother would think uh, of 
the fight that you're fighting now? I have no doubt that she would be very proud of me. Um, I, I think, you know, when, when you're born, you're born a chestnut in Alabama, especially if you choose the profession that I chose, uh, you have you have no choice. You have to serve people. What we were, I mean, this isn't just an Alabama thing. And also, I think the through lines to Washington here is part of this, because Senator Steve Livingston, who is a Republican from Scottsboro, said he he spoke with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who he said told him, I'm interested in keeping my majority. I mean, what do you say to to the Kevin McCarthy's, the other national Republicans that are getting involved in the redrawing of Alabama's map? Yes. You know, um, you know, in Alabama, we always say we should have Alabama solutions for Alabama problem. Well, if that's the case, then why is someone from California calling in to Alabama dictating the terms by which we engage in uh, legislation? I just find it that patently offensive and it is meddling at the highest order and we should reject that. And But instead of rejecting that, it seems like uh, many in the legislature accepted that, um, you know, that that push to do something that would um, violate the Supreme Court uh, court order. Because I, I think when you look at that map that they drew, um, and, and there's no way that you can look at that map and look at the 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 how black the black population is very contiguous and compact. You can draw two two districts with majority minority um, um, districts easily. You can do that easily. And if you can't do one, do both with over 50 percent, you can get something very close to it. Alabama State Representative Prince Chestnut, thank you for coming on. Thank you for also sharing about your grandmother with us. Thank you. And we'll be right back. And thank you so much for joining us tonight. CNN Primetime with Abby Phillips starts right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.